0: Well, welcome back to another podcast, and uh, I guess this will be the second one here of the morning. Obviously, my voice has warmed up a little bit better, probably a little bit more alert too. The sun's finally out, and I can hear the birds outside, so that's always a good sign. It's probably a pretty good day for shooting out there, so I'm going to try to bang through this one, maybe get out, do a little bit of practicing today, and finally enjoy some Weather without the rain. It's been terribly wet around these parts anyway, but uh, I'm going to go through several of the questions from the different social media pages. I'm going to start with my personal page. Um, And I guess for those of you out there who are listening to the podcast and who have sent me a friend request to my personal Facebook page, it is maxed out. So if I'm not accepting your friend request, that is nothing i can help um so you'll have to go to the just focus on the knock on tv page on facebook or you can go to the john dudley athlete page although i haven't been the best at keeping up on those three pages all together but uh so i'm going to start with some of the questions that i had from uh, my personal page and i'm going to go to the questions that i got from the knock on tv page And then I'm gonna go to some of the questions that I got from uh, Instagram, which is pretty much my favorite because it's easy and fast. So first question here is from a great shooter, good buddy, um, Justin Ertle. I assume you're probably on your way down to the ASA shoot today. So good luck, buddy, down there. But um, you asked a question about push pull pressure between the bow hand and, you know, your pull on the release and what that should be and if there's a happy medium between both. So, um, to answer that question, I've never really been a push pull person. I really focus on trying to utilize my structure and my bone alignment, um, to maintain stability in the front half. Um, I like the front half to somewhat be static while the back half is being dynamic Um, just because I like to have a little bit steadier sight window when I'm looking through my scope and I feel like when I'm trying to push to make a shot happen I feel like I sometimes start to push myself off the target more often too Um, and I also don't like to force any type of torque or you know, pressure on the front handle that isn't necessary. I really like to keep my front arm relaxed from the bicep all the way forward. Um, so I really focus more on, you know, actually pulling and depending on the type of release I shoot will really determine uh, if I'm shooting a hinge release. I like to try to build pressure on my back as I relax my release hand, or at least my index finger. Um, If I'm shooting a thumb trigger, I'll just pretty much maintain uh, all consistent pressure through all the fingers that are on the release. But as I'm pulling that elbow back behind me, I actually envision uh, pulling almost a little bit harder through with my index finger. I'll, I'll keep my index finger wrapped around the release and keep it rigid, but I almost focus on trying to pull that index finger along the bottom of my jaw. And as I do that, I'll in turn build pressure on the thumb until I get my release to fire. Um, I don't move my thumb at all. Once I put my thumb to the trigger, it stays in that same exact position. So, uh, that's pretty much what I do. I'm, I tried push pull, um, with my recurve as well when I shot that. Um, and I still would be shooting it if I didn't have my shoulder issue, but, um, it was kind of the same thing with that a lot you know some of the coaches did teach a little bit of a push pull to get through your clicker but I feel like if my front shoulder is in the correct position I'm able to have the range of motion to pull through that I need now if you're a shooter that compresses your front shoulder back against your spine like I've talked about in the past then a push pull motion probably helps because of the fact you're able to actually get enough movement to make your shot happen but if your front shoulder is down and forward you have a lot of room in the back to make that movement and then you can maintain you know a relaxed front arm and not really get into hyper extending the front arm or creating any additional um, pressure by pushing on the grip. Um, Next question here is going to be from Chris Wall. Um, Chris is my buddy down um, near Atlanta um, at the dealership where I'm going to be going down and working with him and a lot of the hunters and archers down in that whole Georgia area. So uh, for those of you who didn't listen to the last podcast and somehow are tuning into this one, uh, make sure you come... On Saturday, June 27th, I'm actually going to be down by uh, Wild Willies at 220 West May Street in uh, Winder, Georgia. So make sure you... uh, And I'll also be down there at Aikens Ford, um, which is right there as well. So make sure you guys come down and see me. It's going to be uh, a whole day of you getting to ask me questions, I'm going to give away a bunch of uh, archery stuff uh, to any of the archers that show up, and it's going to be kind of a just a laid-back meet-and-greet type deal, so I appreciate Chris setting all that up. Um, So Chris's question is, why don't you use a back bar on your hunting bow, um, but you do on your target setup? This is actually a pretty frequent question that I get asked, um, when it comes to my hunting setups, I just really, really like to keep it simple. Um, I like things that are easy for me to, to put on my racks. If I put them on an ATV to go somewhere, I like them to be able to get them in and out of a case easy. I don't like having to take things on and off. Um, if I'm maneuvering through brush, I, you know, I just, I like a fairly light setup that's maneuverable, easy to move around. Uh you got to remember when I'm in it like a tree stand for example hunting, most of the time I'm filming myself too. So I'm trying to I'm trying to be in a tree with an easy hanger with my bow on it, and then I've got a camera arm around the side of me with a camera and you know obviously I'm hauling out all the crap that you need for that. So even having a bow with that sticking out of there could potentially run into a problem bumping into my camera depending on the tree I'm in as well. So um, I have just found that with my hunting bow, I try to keep my quiver really close to my bow and I keep it back. Um, otherwise, I take it off. If For the most part, I try to take it off. Um, but I just like having a stabilizer on my hunting bow that's long enough to where when I set my bow on the ground, the stabilizer is just long enough so that my sights don't squish into the mud um, if I set it down. So that's kind of what I do. And then on my target bows, I like a front stabilizer that's long enough to where when I set it on the ground, it allows me to relax my front arm. Um, And then I put a side bar on that's just long enough to counteract um, the sight And also you got to remember, Chris, that my hunting bows are a lot shorter than my target bows. So from, you know, a stability point of view, um, everything's a lot more compact. So the, you know, that weight of the top limb or the top limb cup, um, is a lot closer towards center. So it, I don't feel like I have near as much lean as what I do, like say when I'm shooting a 38 or 40 inch axle-to-axle bow with my sight that's extended all the way out. Um, you know, those are the things that make me want a side rod. And even when I do the side rod, I'm not a big fan of all these stabilizer setups that have a lot of weight on them. I know that they may slow your sight picture down some. However the price you're paying for that is you know a lot of times you physically cannot hold that much weight out in front of you and keep your shoulder in the position that I really strive for you end up having to compress your shoulder or lean back at your hip in order to physically be able to support that much weight out in front of you so that's why I do it and that's what I recommend um And I look forward to seeing you in in about a month here, I guess, buddy. So appreciate uh, you setting that up and look forward to meeting all your diehard archers down there. Um, Next question here is from uh, Smokey Dramus. And your question was, I want to know what your alarm number one is set at. Because as you noticed when I said I've got my alarm set for 315 for this podcast, or actually the last one I recorded... Um i you saw it was on number two, so yeah, number one is pretty much reserved for um Sharon. She controls that alarm clock because she pretty much manages the house, and that alarm clock is pretty much set to whatever time she's gotta get up and get little Dud to school or get him up if he's doing morning studies, so. Um, she's number one in the house, I'm number two. That's pretty much how we got that set. So, um, appreciate the question though. Uh, Alex uh, Bollinger is asking, What is the most forgiving speed? Um, you know, too fast loses forget forgiveness, uh, too slow loses forgiveness. Um, to say he's pretty much saying, um, you know, as for an example, like for the Yankton. Uh, car sheet off 50 to 70 meter indoors. Um, kind of wondering what's the best speed and also what diameter arrow would be best. Um, and why you wouldn't want a large diameter arrow for that sheet. Well, if it's inside, it doesn't matter what arrow you have. Um, to be honest with you, you know, I've shot, um, uh, back when I did a little bit of training at the at the Biter Center in Germany, you know, it's all indoors there and there was times where I was I'd go down there with my feet set up and I would shoot indoor rounds at seventy meters and then I would show up some years with my with my indoor setup. So one set up with was set up with small diameter X tens and one set up with like twenty three fifteens or fat boy shafts with four inch veins. So um, I've pretty much shot the exact same scores at 70 meters with both those types of setups. So if you are completely eliminating uh, the wind variable then you know a larger diameter shaft could technically help you as long as you're picking a large diameter shaft that has the consistency and the tolerance ratings that some of your target arrows do and, you know, making sure that you've perfectly matched that arrow for the bow that you're shooting. You know, I I can't say that a bow will shoot better with an X10 arrow over an aluminum arrow if the bow is matched perfectly with either of those types of arrows. Um, you can get the exact same results. I can shoot in the same hole using a shooting machine with X10s, or I can put uh, a perfectly matched, you know, full diameter carbon arrow or a perfectly matched aluminum arrow in there and shoot in the same hole as well. So uh, the diameter really doesn't have a factor if you're not factoring in wind regardless of the distance. Now if it's outside obviously the further you shoot the more importance there's going to be to a a micro diameter style shaft. Um, In relation to speed, you know personally I never had any bow shoot really good for me over 300 feet per second. Um, One of the better shooting field bows that I shot I used to shoot uh, ACEs out of it with 120 grain points and I had that bow shooting at about 298 and that bow shot really 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 good for me I really like that setup uh once I got much faster than that you know again I think uh for me anyway and maybe it was just my draw length you know I'm a 31 inch draw so the arrow is on the string for quite a while compared to a shorter draw person um I just think that for me staying under that 300 mark was pretty good you know but then again I've had guys beat me at tournaments at IBO tournaments shooting 320 feet per second so um I don't know how far they shot to see if they could maintain that forgiveness. What I will tell you is um, probably the best shooting bow I ever had, all around bow, and a bow that I shot for multiple tournaments, outdoor tournaments throughout the year, and shot it for unmarked field, marked field, as well as um, outdoor feta events. Um, was shooting about right at 278 or 280. Um, That same bow, I was shooting X10s with a 187 shield cut vein and uh, 120 grain point. And that same bow, uh, I was shooting about 62 or 62 half pounds. And that same bow shot record numbers on multiple ranges and that's really a speed that I that I really like to be at and and being from my background in 3D back when there was you know 285 was the max or 288 technically was the max at an ASA shoot you know I always strove kind of strived for that 284 number for speed uh, just to kind of have a little bit of buffer depending on the chronograph and I just really got used to how a bow feels and how arrows sound at that speed and uh, i really I really liked that particular thing and that's where I set up my hunting bows too I like to stay I like to pick an arrow that's heavy enough to where when I'm shooting my hunting bow no matter how fast the bow is I try to stick around that two eighty. 285 mark with my hunting arrows. Um, and I just, if the bows are shooting faster, I just build a heavier arrow. Um, I've actually got a Sherlock lethal weapon max that I've probably shot now for 10 or 12 years. Um, same one. And most years I don't even have to adjust my individual pins. My scale is almost always the same even though I'm changing arrows Uh, because typically if I shoot more weight uh, or if I shoot you know if it's faster if it's slower I just change an arrow to where I'm still in that same type of speed and all the calculations tend to kinda fall pretty close to the same I hardly ever have to move anything so the next question I have here was a really good one because the question is, how does making a manufacture or how does um, making a manufacturer change affect an amateur's credibility in the world of archery? Um, for example, changing your bow brand after being with one for a number of years, and then making another move. So. And this isn't. This doesn't matter whether you're a pro or an amateur. To be honest with you, uh, there's a couple things there. You know, I've I've made some changes. Um, you know, I made a few changes in broadheads this past year. Um, you know, I've made I've made changes in the past with bow brands. I've shot PSEs. I've shot High Countries. I've shot Matthews. I've shot Hoyts. Um, When I was an amateur, you know, when I bought Bose, my local shop was a PSE dealership. That's They sold PSEs and had High Countries. Um, They didn't sell very many High Countries, but they they had them. They could sell them. And I actually um, really liked High Countries at the time and um, got to know Burley Hall fairly well at some of my first 3D shoots. And um, Burley ended up you know get my shop to do like a co-op sponsorship for me so you know for most of my amateur years I shot high countries and um then you know then eventually I I actually opened my own shop and sold high countries and then I got a um an opportunity to shoot for Matthews when I turned pro and I decided to to take that opportunity obviously because they had a great contingency program so i actually had an archery shop did not sell uh matthews but i shot matthews and i sold high countries so uh i think what's most important for any of you out there who do these types of things is to make sure that you don't burn bridges um you know being open and honest with either the shop that's supporting you and letting them know this is, you know, this is, I like this bow better or these people are really doing something that's better for me, but I feel stuck. You know, what do I need to do to make sure there's no hard feelings? Um, Making sure that you've fulfilled a contract and that you're clear in advance that you're probably going to make, a change down the road or that you're contemplating that. So there's no surprises. Um, those are all the things that are, that are important. You know, I can tell you right now that, um, you know, I was, I was with Matthews for 10 years and uh, the very, the very first phone calls I had was uh, from PSE, Botech, and the first one was actually Hoyt. Um, you know, within within hours of when I left Matthews, um, I had a phone call already, you know, just kinda asking what happened and what I plan to do and will I be changing companies. And I can honestly tell you that if I would not have treated people the right way that worked at Hoyt and people that were involved with Hoyt, um then I would have burned that bridge and they would not have been the first people to call me, um, when I decided to make a change. So, you know, I think it's all a matter of how you look at everything and being the type of person that, you know, realizes that a lot of companies buy other companies and this is a very, very small world. Um, the archery community is a small world and it's not worth burning any bridges because you never know this person that you end up having a fallout with could end up being right at another company that you're working with a day later. So, you know, I would say be open, uh, be honest and weigh out all your options. Uh, but what I will say is, um, there's always depending on the company, um, you know, it seems like especially when you start to have a few good performances, everybody's wanting to take you and everybody's wanting to take you. But, um, you know, you have to really look at what opportunities are going to be best for you in the long haul. If you're looking at things from a short haul point of view, then uh, you're probably not going to be better off, to be honest with you. So uh, the next question here is from Corey Turnbull and... Your question is um, the suggested steps for making the transition from a release, from a wrist release to a handheld release. You, um, you said you're going to be making the switch after the Oilman shoot this weekend. And I can tell you right now, first and foremost, heck yeah, big shout out to Shane at the oilman Shoot, uh, big shout out to all you guys uh up in canada going to go the oilman Shoot. great tournament great cause great organizer shane jensen's a been a great guy to work with um and i appreciate everything that you're giving back to the sport and good luck to to b lamb and dean thornton up there uh the knock-on little sidekicks you guys are uh definitely representing up there in canada Uh, good luck to the reimer family too if you guys are going to make the trip over there got so many great people in canada that do so much for us and i know that's a big weekend for all of you out there so if any of you are heading to the heading out to the shoot this weekend uh make sure you give shane a uh, slap to the back of the head for me so i appreciate all that but to get back to your uh, question here corey um i actually have an article coming out in i believe the next edition of peterson's bow hunting it might actually be not this one coming i do have one in this one coming but it might be the next one um pretty much talking about mastering the release aid and how to you know shoot a handheld versus the thumb And essentially, you know, if you're making the transition because you don't want, you know, if you're anticipating the trigger, then you almost need to jump that thumb activated release and get right into either an evolution, uh, tension activated release, or a back tension, a hinge style back tension anyway. Because you need to go to something that you're not going to anticipate the shot with. It's not about just going to the handheld release. Now, if you're if you shoot a caliper release and a wrist strap release the correct way, and then you're going to your handheld release, um, just as a you know as a change, then yeah, you'll be fine. But if you're doing it to not anticipate the shot, then you really there's going to be a few more steps to that than, than really what you're talking about here. Your option shouldn't just be a wrist strap or a thumb activated. Um, if you're trying to avoid target anticipation, you need to really look at either hinge release or a tension activated release like the Carter Evolution. Um, but when it comes to a handheld release, more or less when you grab that release, you want to To hold the release in your hand, you want to curl your fingers around that release while keeping your hand flat. You don't want to start to curl your hand to the point where you're almost making a fist. From your wrist to um, where you're, you know, kind of not your fist knuckles, but the middle knuckle in your finger. From your wrist to those middle knuckles should be flat when you're looking down at your at yourself holding that release in front of you. Um, and what you'll find is with most of the handheld releases, when you grab them, it's gonna create a separation between your index finger and your middle finger. That separation is almost like a little V. And what I do is I try to envision as I draw my bow back, I want to pull that V right along my jawline. So my index finger is just under my jawbone and my middle finger is right above my jawbone. So it's almost like your jaw is just coming right into that slot. Or technically, as you draw and your bow stops, you bring that slot Right over and put your jaw right in between that separation. So that's really kind of the early stages of it. Make sure you um, look for that article too because that has some great pictures and has some full explanations on shooting both and also shows you some great photos on how to set your thumb up. Um, There's also an article as well on the dudleyarchery.info website or the knockontv.com website if you go to the articles um look for an article called anchor up or anchorage i believe and you'll find a little bit more of a read on this subject um next question here is from nils uh sack crossack um and the way Nils is spelled, I assume you're from somewhere in Europe. Um, but you're asking uh, the Retina Lock slash No Peep. Um, talk a little bit about on that. Um, I really like the Retina Lock. It's it's available on the Sherlock um, Red, Lethal Weapon Red, or on the IQ Bow sights, and you know it instantly shows you any type of hand torque. That you have. Um, It's made a huge difference while I'm shooting with my mouth tab. I can't even explain how much of a difference it's made because um, being able to draw back and just look at that and see, you know, if the black, if once you've set it up, and pretty much what you do to set it up correctly is you actually sight your bow in first at 20 yards. And once you're shooting at 20 yards, because that way you know your anchor and everything is right for you to shoot at 20 yards. Then you actually uh, use a small little Allen key and you'll adjust that retina to where when you're totally relaxed, um, the black dot is right in the center of the green. And if you have any type of variance in hand pressure or anchor position, you can see it instantly in that you know the black dot won't be in the center of the green. So it's a great device. And for me, learning to shoot left-handed, just the whole feel of my right hand on a bow grip is pretty different and new. So I just couldn't believe how much I was actually varying my hand position on the grip when I was shooting with my mouth. So having that retina has made a huge, huge difference. So uh, if you're in the market, it's a great option. And I know somewhere else, someone asked the question about whether or not that was going to be available on, on a target site. And I know that at the time we were working on that a little bit. Um, and then also making sure that it it was approved by FIDA as well. So, um, and Nils had a few other questions here. Um, you, you say that you have a lot of trouble relaxing through the shot and that you had some uh, bad target panic in the past. Um, now you've switched to a hinge and you feel like sometimes you over-aim and that when your sight picture and everything looks good, you tend to just kind of not have any movement in the release hand. Uh, you just stay strong um, and you don't really... Advance your shot any so that it fires because you really like how the sight picture looks steady. Well, that's just something that mentally you're going to have to get by. Um, You know, it's all about timing and learning to shoot in a cadence. You know, my shot sequences are very, very fluid. Um, Typically, once I've put my finger to the trigger, If I'm on there for more than about seven seconds, I'll let down. Because, you know, I really like my shots to go, you know, between that four to six second mark once I actually bring my finger and engage the trigger and start my pull. Um, I don't like to wait. I don't, you know, if if I'm trying to pull and then I stop and then I pull and then I stop and then I pull and I stop what I find is every time I try to, to pull, but then I stop and then I pull again. What I find is every time I start pulling again, the front shoulder ultimately starts to slowly creep up against the neck as you're doing that. So, um, I really focus on just kind of almost counting through my head and having, you know, a lot of times what's nice about having like a, An actual word or a sentence that you're saying as you're aiming a positive self talk that you're saying as you're aiming and pulling and as you're you're going through your shot once you've engaged your trigger what's nice about that is it kind of helps in the timing I know that um, the last time I shot Vegas um, what I was saying in my mind was I shoot tens because they make me feel good And I was just saying that in my mind over and over and over again, because what I found was that saying really helped my timing. Uh, You know, once I drew back, anchored, looked through my peep, got my sight on the target, and I'd have my pin in the 10. I would just, I shoot 10s because they make me feel down, and it would go off because I would just, that sentence and what I was saying, and by occupying my mind with that, with that verbiage, it was really, really helping me out. So try something like that, and I'm certain that it's going to help you get a little bit more in routine. Don't worry as much about aiming. Aiming solid doesn't mean anything if you can't hit the middle. You know, making a good shot and getting good timing is going to be way more important than being able to hold still. Um, next, uh, next question is going to be, Uh, from Kevin Brennan Uh, he's asking please tell us advantages of a tied knock versus a crimped brass knock Um, and can you use the D loop as a knocking point I actually don't like to use the D loop as my knocking point because what I find is a lot of times if your peep ever turns and you have to twist your D loop a little bit um, you end up kind of the D loop will start to spiral up or down the string depending on the way you turn it. So you end up changing your knock position or if someone grabs your bow and pulls it back with their fingers and separates your, your loop at all, um, you know, any of that, you've kind of completely lost your tune. I like to at least have one tied knocking point so that if I do have to change my loop for any reason I'm not having to retune my knocking position. Um, I really prefer tied knocks over brass knocks simply because it's less weight on the string. I'm a firm believer in keeping less weight on the center of the string. If you do add weight for speed purposes it needs to be towards the end of the string because you really decrease your string oscillation as well. Um, if you're a finger shooter, obviously brass knocks are really hard on your fingers as well. Um, and if you tie knocks, you'll find that your D loop can actually be a little bit closer together by tie, having tied knocks versus having the big brass knocks. So I'm not a fan of, uh, of using the brass knocks in the center. Um, So if you know how to do it, and soon enough, actually, um, within the next five or six weeks, we'll be loading the new season of Knock on TV on the uh, YouTube site and on the websites. Um, And we'll also probably separate the Knocked and Ready to Rock segments into um, probably, you know, separate those into individual segments and on one of those knocked and ready to rock segments we go through tying in uh your knocking points and your d loop so you'll be able to use that as a reference um so let's see here uh next one is going to be from stacy bud Wright, and you're asking about clarifiers or verifiers for the peeps Um, he said I started wearing glasses and find it near impossible to see properly while shooting the if you're having problems with your vision or if you're shooting glasses and you can't really see your pin clear um, then yeah I'm a pretty big believer in having that clarifier or you know a verifier type peep just so that you can clear up your picture a little bit now if your eyes are good I'm not a fan simply because, you know, one little drop of water hits your peep or if dust gets in there, it really starts to cloud up your clarity anyway. Um, I've always shot a magnification and a quality of lens that would allow me to not have to really shoot a clarifier in my peep. Um, I always shot like a, a three or four power lens Um, and if I did shoot a higher power lens, it was typically for indoor shooting. And I didn't mind having the target just a little bit fuzzy. I could always see my pin really well. Um, I guess it depended where I focused. If I focused on the target more, I could see the target fairly clear. Um, but then, you know, my, my pin would be a little bit a little bit unclear the higher you go in magnification that seems to happen and I don't like having too much magnification just because I don't really like to see my movement sometimes seeing that much movement can spur on some anticipation or some anxiety as well um, so if you have glasses and you do need it then uh, then for sure look into those i think it'll be better for you the better you can see the better you're going to shoot that's that's going to be a given uh the next question here is from scott uh, Roduner or Rodiner and he's asking saying that he shoots a nitron 30 set at 62 pounds 26 and a half inch draw length and that you're shooting axis 400 um, that you want to start shooting out to 100 yards, and what's pretty much the bare minimum poundage you should be pulling to shoot consistently and accurately at that distance? Well, you know, I can tell you, dude, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of archers out there that have that shorter draw length. That are shooting 62 pounds and shooting really really good out to 90 meters which is 91 yards because a lot of a lot of fetus shooters had to shoot that exact setup because they could only shoot about 60 pounds as a max now from a hunting point of view if you're wanting a hunting arrow you might be a little bit more challenged it's it's really not a, about um, what type of poundage you need it's more about Um, whether the arrow that you're picking and that you're shooting will allow you to get your sight down low enough to where you can actually get to that distance. You know, a heavier arrow obviously is going to have more drop. So if you are only wanting to shoot that distance with like your hunting arrow, then yeah, you may have to definitely increase your poundage simply because you have a pretty short draw length as well. But if you're just wanting to shoot that distance, um, you could always go to a lighter arrow just to try to get a little bit more speed, um, so that you can achieve that distance. So, unless you're talking about actual um, poundage needed for to maintain a decent kinetic energy as a hunter, um, that's kind of a different story. But you know, really, it doesn't matter what poundage you shoot as long as you can get your sight. Um, to have enough range to where you can actually get to that distance. But there's a ton of people in the target community that had to shoot 90 meters in a full theta event that were shooting 62 pounds as well and and definitely finding arrows that that could do it for them. Uh, Next question here is from Bruce Martin. Um, Says he's looking to upgrade his strings and cables to a winner's choice. And on the website, it asks for the links. So he's kind of asking, does he need to take his bow to the local shop and have them measure them? Or can he just tell Winner's Choice um, his bow, make, and model? Um, and yeah, that you can do. You can tell them that, you know, you can say, hey, I have a Hoyt Nitrum uh, 30, and I'm shooting you will probably need to know what cam number you have because, for example, like on the Hoyt, you'll have a size one, two, or three cam. It doesn't really matter what the module is set at, but what cam numbers on it will be important. So, um, or for example, if you have, um, you know, a pro edge elite, you know, you, you're going to have to, be able to tell them, okay, this is the cam system that I'm shooting on some of the target bows. You have the option between like a, um, a spiral cam or a GTX cam. You'll need to be able to tell them I'm shooting a GTX cam, uh, number five on this, you know, on a, on this bow or whatever. And they'll, they'll have all those tune charts on file already from the manufacturers. Um, Otherwise, you can always go off, you know, the what you have on your limb sticker. Uh, but being able to tell them your make, model, um, if that if that model's been made for several different years, like for example, the Carbon Matrix had several different versions. Uh, it's important to say, well, it's a Carbon Matrix Plus, um, or you know, it's a Carbon Matrix with the RKT Cam on it. Um, that's pretty much what they need to know and they'll be able to build you exactly what you need. So uh, uh, another question here from Raymond Ritter, he's saying all of my hunting has been done out of homemade stands Uh, and he's recently got permission to hunt different properties where he can't build the stands. So he was thinking about a climbing you know, a climber, but thinks that the tree selection will limit his ability on that. So he kind of wants to know what types of stands and stick combinations would be good for him. And honestly, that's why I've used lone wolves for so many years. I've probably hunted out of lone wolves for, I don't know, 15 years or so because their sticks actually stack and they can, they Fit right onto the onto the stand itself, and actually, Lone Wolf makes a um, a a stick quiver. Now, Um, it's a cool little bracket that actually clips onto the main post of the tree stand, and then you can actually clip in four of the sticks uh, right on there. So, you know, if you travel with that, you should be able to get probably. 16 or 17 feet in the air pretty easy and it's you know one strap that goes around Uh, you cinch it down then you pull the you literally pull that climbing stick down towards the ground to kind of cinch it on the tree and from there you can go right up just make sure you're wearing your safety harness always Um, you know that's the nice thing about ladders and a homemade stand is the ability to have something to really have a hold of and have a little bit more security. Uh, so I definitely don't want to hear another story of someone having a tragic accident from a tree stand. And I'm one that has fallen victim to it. So uh, make sure you're tied in and, uh, and that you're being safe, buddy. So uh, I got the next question here from Chris. Shum or Shum, I really don't know how to pronounce your last name, but um, I appreciate everything you do on Facebook and stuff, and help and spread the word about Knock On too, Chris. But um, kind of, let's see, let's talk about fine tuning a Hoyt on a draw board. Um, Do you put them to exact spec axle to axle, etc.? So this will actually be a subject that will. You'll also be able to see on um, on our YouTube channel uh, soon enough. Once we can show you the Knocked and Ready to Rock segments that were on season five of the show, um, we kind of went through this. I do like a draw board because I do really like to get my draw length very specific, and I usually use my strings and cables to do that. Um, you know the module gets you close but strings and cable lengths get you exact and really the basic rule of thumb is shortening a string will shorten your draw length and length and shortening your cable will lengthen your draw length Um, so um, i if i replace my sets of strings and cables on my bows i do like to try to at least make sure my new sets Uh, get my marks back uh, close to factory spec Um, and for the most part what I do is I'll always take like a piece of tape and put it on the cam so I can make a temporary mark using my limb as a reference and then I'll replace one string or one cable at a time from the factory set so that I know you know when I put this string on if my marks are slightly out, you know, maybe I'll have to twist the string up a little bit to get them back into that spec, but it's easy to do one at a time because then you get that bow back to spec really simple without getting too much stuff out of whack. So, um, that's how I like to do it. Um, I don't, you know, a lot of times the manufacturers have little asterisks by their specs and that's because, um, it's an approximate. Depending on the cam size that you have, um, depending on your draw length, um, there's always a slight variance in the true axle-to-axle and brace height spec. So um, if you're not getting like if you're not getting anywhere close to the poundage or the draw length that you're supposed to out of the bow that you have, then I would venture to say you need to measure those specs and try to make sure you're close to what those factory specs are. And then you're going to find that you'll be able to get your peak weight and your draw length that you need to. But if you're not, then yeah, you need to get close to those specs. But I don't I don't make that an absolute um I use the strings and cables to fine tune my draw length. I do use that on a draw board. Lancaster Archery makes a really cool draw board. Um, they make a great one. Uh, you, if you can mount that um, onto, like, you know, two saw horses or something, uh, it's a great thing to have. Really good way to, to know your setups and be able to build bows that match. Uh, next question here is from John Schmidt. Just I kind of had highlighted and copied and pasted these as I went through so some of them I am just didn't really remember until I'm seeing them right now but John's asking about the funniest thing that's ever happened to me during a tournament so um, I always like to have fun during tournaments just so you know um, so I've got an abundance of tournament stories but for whatever reason when I read that the one that Like, came to my mind the quickest was my rookie year on the 3D tour. Um, we went out and it was at an ASA or an IBO shoot. And for any of you who've shot the IBO courses, you know that a lot of times you wait a long time in line to finally start that course, or at least you used to, and sometimes you'd wait two or three hours to start your course. And then once you're on that 10 target range, you're pretty much just going through the timber trying to, you know, and until you're done, you haven't really circled back, um, to your starting point. So, uh, at the time there was not, um, on this particular range, there was not a a porta potty or a bathroom out there. And during the rest between the two ranges, um, I kind of was in the process of eating my lunch from the little concession stand they had there. And by about my third target in, I realized that something wasn't agreeing with me. And it was a state of emergency. It was one of those situations where um, you really know there's no humanly way possible to not have things happen the way they're getting ready to happen so um i don't totally remember who was in my group but um i remember telling them i really have to go to the bathroom i really have to go to the bathroom and the one thing i do remember is there was a girls group behind us um, and we went to a target and I was trying to find a place where I had some shelter to, to do my business. Um, but it was in a really open part of the course. So there was like really nothing going on. And I remember stepping to the stake thinking, I'll be lucky if I can even get this arrow off without something bad happening. And I pulled back and I shot. And as soon as I shot, I told everyone, I said, I have to go right now. And I said, I said, let's, I said, there's a, there's a bush up there by that target. I said, let's get up there quick before the, before the girls come. I said, don't, no one can mess around. We got to go fast. So we boogied down to this target and cause there was a big bush kind of behind the target. Well, when I went to the backside of the bush, I was actually like in plain view of like several other groups shooting. So that bush was really only shielding the target side of that target. So I just looked at everyone and said, I'm sorry, but you guys got to make a wall cause I got to go right now. And we were worried about the women coming up on the target. So the three of them just kind of stood shoulder to shoulder and I was trying my best to, to kind of get clear of the group, but, uh, I pretty much just had to go. I felt like, um, those girls in the bridesmaids movie after they ate at that, uh, that Brazilian steakhouse, I pretty much just said, it's, this is happening right now. So then when I was done, I kind of hadn't really thought ahead enough to realize, okay, I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. So I kind of said, does anybody have any toilet paper? And everyone's just like, really seriously and I just said oh well whatever so I ended up making use of one of my socks and we kind of everybody was just shaking their head I was pretty embarrassed about it we left and everyone kind of bailed and I just said "Can can we keep this between me can we just keep this between us and everyone's just like I mean everyone was nice they're like man we've been there we know how it is and Sorry you felt so bad and I mean it was a it was an emergency situation. Well, as it stands out, I ended up taking second place at the tournament. So, when the IBO called me up on stage to come up to get my plaque, I remember as soon as I stepped up on the stage and I was sitting there with my plaque, I remember George Dixon like yelling out of the crowd he's only got one sock on. and I think he yelled out like, he's the one that crapped at the mule deer or something like that. And pretty much the whole place started cracking up because unfortunately most of the pros had to deal with that situation um, on that particular target. So needless to say, um, that was probably one of my funniest occurrences directly at a tournament. I, I've i had so many that are funny, but for whatever reason, that was the one that popped into my head when I thought about that. So um, we're about an hour into this podcast. I've got a few other pages here of other questions, so I am going to go ahead and knock those out throughout the day. Um, but I just want to thank all you guys out there for sending in these questions, and I may wait a few days to post um, an additional podcast. You've got a couple here to listen to, So thanks everyone once again for listening and good luck to all you out there who are going to be out enjoying a tournament this weekend. Thanks everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.